What's up? It's a Psychology Godfather, and this is episode number seven, where I interview Tracy Collins and her journey into sobriety. She will share with us what it took for her to admit that she had a problem with drinking and alcoholism, and really does a good job of being very humble and sharing some pretty uh, intimate details about her life and her her struggle and her journey with addiction, with, with alcoholism. Um, I think you'll enjoy this episode. It's also uh, simulcast on Facebook Live on her website. You can check it out there at Tracy.com on Facebook. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this interview with Tracy Collins. Psychology Godfather, who has a podcast. I'm his seventh podcast, and uh, George Joseph is your real name, and you can be found at uh, josephcare.net. Yes, I am the Psychology Godfather, George Joseph. Okay, perfect. So we are doing a podcast, but I am doing simultaneously a Facebook Live for you guys, and um, so... I'm going to let him take it away, and then I might interview him afterwards. And if you have any questions for him, uh, go ahead and put it in the comment section because I won't see it until we're ready to, to uh, stream back through those. All right, go ahead. All right, well, cool. Well, uh, welcome, and, and thanks for having me on and for the interview and for Facebook. Uh, it's my first time on Facebook, so hello, Facebook. Um, I heard your radio interview, I guess, last week on the local channel, and you mentioned that you have a website, Tracy.com. Can you tell us what that's all about and what's going on with your cause recently? Okay, so Tracy.com, T-R-A-C-Y-D-O-T-C-O-M.com, right now takes you to my Facebook page where um, I do several things. I do the TDC experience, which is me just kind of going crazy in the in the hood, as, as it were, at different events, and just kind of taking people on um, the journey of my life, because I do go to a lot of events, a lot of fundraisers. I also support a lot of local businesses, um, which I love uh, giving them some love and um, just kind of sharing my life with them. And so most recently, obviously, I've been sharing my life um, in terms of coming to terms with my alcoholism. Okay, so when did you make, When uh, I guess we're going to get into your book and review what I've read and what, what's going on with your cause. Mm-hmm. When did you start your journey of sobriety? How recent has this been? Uh, March 27th is my sobriety date. And uh, so that's about in between seven to eight months. Um, And uh, so, yeah, relatively new. My book is about, uh, obviously, I talk a lot about the experiences leading up to needing help. um, And I get really raw, as I like to say, Um, even in the chapter book, which is a preview to the book, there's defecation and urination. So I get really real about how bad it had gotten. And um, but the majority of the book will be about my first year in sobriety. It must take an um, enormous amount of courage to be public about something like this. How did you find the, the courage to muster you know, this cause and to share some of the nitty-gritty experiences of your story with everyone? I mean, that's really admirable. Well, you know, my mission is to take away the stigma and the shame associated with this. And... Um, and I had shared this on Melissa's show as well. When I was 13, I was in a drinking and driving car accident, and we hit a tree doing 120 miles an hour. Wow. And I walked away um, with 
virtually nothing wrong with me physically. And I received an anonymous letter in the mail. It was obviously written by a woman. And it said, God saved you for a reason. Go find your purpose. And so I carried that that ideology with me through my entire life. Um, so most people know me as Tracy.com, your official phonologist in Jacksonville. And that is, you know, sort of like, oh, I'm going to broadcasting school because I have an interest in broadcasting. Am I going to report on death and mayhem? Nope. I'm going to make a difference in the world and uh, report about all things good. Um, equally as much so in my sobriety, it was okay. I've saved myself, now how can I use this part of my journey to help save others? And in writing this book, um, I remember talking to my editor and saying, you know, should I put this in the book? What about cussing? Because I'm not really a cusser, but, you know, during during moments of my life, it was F-bombs everywhere. And she said, listen, if you're going to write this book, you have got to be completely authentic because if you're not the alcoholics are going to cry BS, and they're not going to respect you enough to make a change in their life. So that, you know, it was really about helping other people. Well, the, the accident when you were 13, was that alcohol-related? Oh, absolutely, yes. Absolutely alcohol-related. Were, were you driving the car at the time, or was you with friends, or what happened? I was 13 years old. I was hanging out with a 17-year-old. Um, we both had gotten drunk. She had walked into a liquor store and purchased um, a bottle of liquor without getting carded. Um, we got drunk. She was upset about an ex-boyfriend. Uh, she assumed he was at a drive-in. We drove through the drive-in, did not see him. As it turned out, I found out later he was there. Uh, we got back out on um, a stretch of uh, road. I, I, I hail from Montana, by the way, so it was... Yeah. Yes, so it was a it was considered a highway through my uh, through my little town uh, because it was um, it was six lanes wide, and um, we were doing 120. It was pretty much a straight stretch until we got to a slight curve. But when you're doing 120, physics will tell you that's not going to work. And so she tried to correct and then overcorrect, and then we hit the curb. We should have hit the tree on my side. Um, Again, through physics, it hit on my side the curb, but it flipped the car up and did a 180, hit on her side with such force that it bounced the car back out the way it was originally facing two lanes over. If you looked at her side of the car, you would have thought nobody lived. If you looked at my side of the car, you would have never thought it was in an accident. And did she survive the accident? She did not. She died. She died. I'm sorry. Okay. And that's when you were 13. Okay, so that, okay, and then since age 13, I mean, that's a tremendous trauma to go through, obviously. Did that make you stop and think about drinking and alcohol, or tell me the, the thought process as a teenager, if you're comfortable, um, after that? Okay, I want to say, for the Facebook, he said to me, I might have some uncomfortable questions for you. I said, bring it. Bring everything you've got. Now, if you're not comfortable, just we can, we'll scratch it. So I, can hard, I can ask some very hard questions, so you let me know. He, listen, again, ask me anything. anything. Roger that. Okay. So, um, yes, at 13, I, um, I remember thinking, I'll never drink again. I remember that thought process. I'll never drink again. And by the next weekend, I was drinking again. 
Okay. So you wanted to quit. You had the thought. Do you remember what, I mean, that's not, you know, I don't know how many years ago that was, but what brought it about to resume the drinking at 13? Just another typical teenage weekend in Great Falls, Montana. Okay, so you were raised in Montana. What brought you to Jacksonville, by the way, while I'm thinking about it? I was in the military. I joined the military um, to get the GI Bill, to get a free college education. Um, While I was in, I was a broadcast journalist um, because that had been my passion my whole life. My uncle was a radio, a morning radio show personality. And so I remember thinking at a very young age, that's what I want to do. And so I joined the military. I got stationed here at Naval Station Mayport on the USS Yosemite and fell in love with Jacksonville and never left. Okay, so the military, and, and, and you know, respect and shout out to all our service members, and thank you for serving our country. I've treated a lot of military folks throughout the years, and I've heard many, many stories, um, especially uh, regarding drinking and alcohol. When you go into port, there's a lot of partying and... and um, I guess liberty is the proper term. Do you recall looking back from where you are now with your career in the military when you served that alcohol was also kind of a big part of your life at that point, if you're comfortable answering that? Yes. Again, I'm comfortable answering anything. Um, So, you know, I hear that a lot. And I have a hard time with that connection of the military and alcohol Because to blame the military for my alcoholism would just be a scapegoat. I was a drinker. And so I was going to drink whether I was in the military or not in the military. So I don't, I've never understood that connection of, you know, the military is why I drank. That's just silly to me. I drank because I drank. So it had nothing to do with the military and the, and the, the brass anchor if you were at that bar? Yeah, of course I've heard of the brass anchor. <laughs> and Captain Odie's, Captain Odie's with their with their nickel beer night, you know, you got to love that. that. Drinking with so, Lincoln. And, you know, it's kind of like the stories that have been shared with me, and obviously I'm not blaming the military in any any way shape or form has been that you know, you're out there working hard and and it's kind of a at least from the, the the males I've spoken to, anyways, it's it's a fraternity kind of environment where we you know we work hard and we're out on the ship and sacrificing and doing our duty and doing watch, et cetera, et cetera. And then we get to port. Come on out, bro. We're going to go out and have a few. And 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 so I've heard a lot of stories about kind of the fraternity aspect of it, and that's what I was referring to. It sounds like that wasn't an issue for you at all. Well, I mean, it definitely has that that feel of a of a fraternity. Um, and maybe the the culture too is that you you work hard, you play hard. I mean, I learned that in boot camp. You work hard, you play hard. That again, looking back, it was probably the scapegoat of my CC in boot camp. He because he drank a lot, <laughs> so you know. But um, but yeah, it's that that is the culture. Yes. Yeah, I just wanted to bring that up. So I appreciate your comments about that. So going back to your. Your uh, memoir, it's called Stumbling into Sobriety. And is that, you're still working on that, correct? Or is that, com- is that a chapter book that's completed now if people want to get a copy of it? How would that happen? Yes, you can get a copy of the chapter book. And uh, just to kind of fill people in on the literary side of it. So the book eventually will be about 160 pages. Um, it starts out with the 
obviously the the really uh, raw points of my drinking, um, and then it goes into uh, my sobriety, the first year of sobriety. So it's still a work in progress through March twenty seventh, twenty eighteen. But it the majority of it will be about what I learned in sobriety because one of the things that kept me from going into treatment is I I romanticized about alcohol like I could not imagine my life without a romantic partner and a bottle of wine without a tailgate party and a bottle of beer you know that romanticized part of drinking but the reality on this side of it and understanding more about myself through uh, going to intensive outpatient treatment is that I don't drink like normal people that is the reality. Um, I'm not trying to make a world full of teetotalers. There are people who can drink and do it in the correct way. I couldn't do it in the correct way. So it was zero to 60. So um, so the majority of the book is about how the things that I discovered along the way about how it is okay to live your life without alcohol and still be a happy person. But I also get really real because it wasn't really happy in the beginning. And so I talk about that in the book, about the, 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 that period of time where I was very um, saddened and, and mourning the, the loss of my lover, the bottle of liquor, and, um, and then how I got through that. Um, so the complete book will be that. But the chapter book stands alone. Um, it... it starts out with the really raw stuff of out of my alcoholism and ends with my first meeting with my counselor uh dr jackson and um and you can get that online at the crushed velvet project.com and anything that you donate to the project i will gift you with the chapter book tell me about the name the crushed velvet sure so the uh crushed velvet was the name of my blog um my for those of you who aren't familiar with my work, I started out at the Florida Times Union as a writer and as a videographer. I would go out and um, do videos with everything that I kind of do now with the TDC experience, except not so raw in terms of uh, video editing. I would actually edit it. And uh, and then I moved into television full-time, uh, working for Action News. And then I went into the corporate world for four years and left that recently and... Um, and now I'm back on Channel 4 uh, doing my Are You Ready for the Weekend segments on both the morning show uh, and River City Live. And then on the sister station, CW17 on I Know Jacks. I still write for the Times Union, never stopped. I still write about drinking events. Won't do, Yep, absolutely, absolutely. Again, my, my mission is not to, um, to create a world full of teetotalers. It's to reach that person who knows that they are about to die because I was about to die. Um, so that's what the Crush Velvet Project is about, is about reaching those people and, um, and letting them know that it's, it's, they do not need to live in shame. They can ask for help. Um, so the, the term came up, the Crush Velvet, when I was a blogger on Jacksonville.com because I was taking people behind the velvet rope with me. You oh, know, that crushed yeah, velvet yeah, rope. Yeah, yeah. But then it turned into a dual meaning because... For me, you know, living my life on the red carpet, that bottle of vodka was crushing the the red velvet carpet uh, beneath me, and it, the bottom was about to fall out, and I knew it. I see. Now, looking at the chapter book here, the the beginning, I see a dedication for Susan, um, and 
would you like to share that with our listeners, viewers? Yes. So, um, yes, it says, for Susan, you did not fail in the darkness, in the isolated silence. Your pain shined a guiding light, and I am forever grateful. To honor you, I will make it my life's work to lead others to the escape that eluded you. To help the hopeless understand the mountain in front of them is nothing more than a mirage. You did not die in vain, Susan. You died so others would live. And Susan is... is She is a woman that I never met. She is the mother of a dear friend of mine. I feel like you're going to need to get the tissue box. We've got plenty of... I've got a lot of stock and Kleenex here at at, uh, the site Godfather Studios, so don't worry about it. I appreciate that. So she is a woman that I never met. She is the mother of a dear friend of mine. Um... And she died of alcoholism. And so in, in the lunches of, uh, that I had with my friend sharing, you know, her sadness over the loss of her mother, but sharing the truth of her mother's disease, every story that she told me, I sat there in silence thinking, oh, my gosh, that is my future. This you saw yourself. I did. I saw myself. Your future death? Yes. Um, one of the stories that I write about in the book that was, uh, was uh, really an eye-opener for me is that in the last stages of her mother's um, life, she had completely isolated herself. I had only isolated myself on the weekends. Um, out in public, you would have never known. Close, close friends of mine didn't even know what was going on behind the closed doors. But on Friday night, I would lock myself in with a giant bottle of vodka and enough food to sustain me through the weekend. And I would stay in bed, binge-watching watching television, binge-drinking, binge and uh, binging on food that was not good for me. And I would not pull the curtains back until Monday morning when it was time to go to work. So what had happened to Susan in the end is she had isolated herself completely. And so I was asking my girlfriend questions, which just seemed at the time to her like inquisitive questions of a friend. Um, but I was really asking the questions because I, I saw my future. I asked her questions like, well, how does she get food? Well, how does she get her alcohol? I mean, she obviously goes out to get her alcohol. Well, she had her alcohol delivered to her by um, cab drivers. And I said, so the cab drivers come to the door, and she gives them the money, and she goes, no, she doesn't even see them. They come to her back porch, and she leaves the money on the back porch, and they set the alcohol there. And so I remember sitting on my couch just staring out at my back porch, visualizing a stranger coming to onto my back patio and not even seeing because they just came out of the sunlight, not even seeing them them not because of the the shift in the light outside to the darkness not being able to see me sitting in the darkness looking at them watching them set that bottle of vodka on my back patio take the money and leave and i thought one day I, that visualization is going to become a reality if i don't change this and so the stories about susan were constantly haunting me in my head and so i felt it very important um, for my friend to know that, you know, although she couldn't save her mom, the ripple effect of her sharing that story of her mother with me is going to save many, many other people. 
Wow, it's a really touching story. So you were on that path yourself, and it sounds like you know a different part of your brain kind of took over and was planning ahead of time and calculating out. Well, I'm going to spend the weekend in bed with the you know, with my vodka and so on. And um, so you saw what you were doing, but yet you did it anyway at the time. Yes, I did it. Well, you can't you can't stop when you're in the throes of it. There, you don't see an exit. You don't see an out. You, all you see is that mountain that turns out to be a, a huge lie once you do ask for help. When does it, and, and I want to go in further detail with some questions about the, the book and so on, um, but just kind of armchair quarterbacking from where you are at this point in your sobriety, when did it start to dawn on you that um, the disease or the problem of alcohol addiction was really something that was starting to take over? Was it, um, you know, it sounds like it, 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 did it gradually happen or is it, is it the hangover? Is it, what's the thought process there where you realized I'm waking up to this, to this disease? I, well, I didn't have hangovers. I was so deep into it that I didn't have hangovers. No, I had severe anxiety, um, but I had medication for that. Um, so, so my cycle was, I would wake up in the morning with severe anxiety. I would take a Xanax. I would, um, make it through the day. Um, I write about in the book that I was consumed by this spinning in my brain about, uh, uh, bargaining with my, with myself. Do I drink today? Do I not drink today? No, I I should drink uh, just wine today. No, I shouldn't drink at all. Well, I'll just have a little I'll just have three of those little minis that'll get me stabilized back to normal and it that consumed the majority of my day was that to deal with the anxiety of the the drinking the night before or was that just a, your daily protocol what am I going to drink today yeah, no that was a daily protocol yes mm-hmm. because I wanted to in, in my heart I wanted to quit mm-hmm. but my mind and my body didn't want me to quit Yes, it does. It does. It makes sense. Okay, so I would go home, and then I would get normal. I would get to that happy spot, uh, which most people who drink, that's that's just their end goal, is just to get to that... Buzz. Just get that buzzed drink going. Um, But what ended up happening was... um, I I would go beyond that to blackout and then to pass out and I I would because I had trouble sleeping because alcohol is it it causes you know trouble with sleeping I would take Ambien um, so and then on, in addition to that I was on antidepressants as you can imagine so um, the, it was just this constant vicious cycle so to get out of that cycle you know it's sort of like it's sort of like you know being in the gerbil wheel and you don't you're like how I might, how do I get out? You know, you just can't see the out. Well, you're describing illness. Yeah. So to get back to your original question of how did I kind of, you know, come to this realization, I did a program called the 904 Thin. Have you heard of this program? I've heard of it. It's a weight loss program? It is a weight loss program. So I did this program um, because I knew my life was out of control, but I thought, you know, what is one thing that I can control? And I thought, I'm going to get on this program, and I'm at least going to get my weight under control. So that's, I'll start with that. So in addition to, because of the eating healthy, because you eat real food, it's not a program that puts you on like shakes or anything like that. You eat real food, but you eat food that works well with your body. So in addition to um, uh 
getting healthy because I was eating real food, which was protein, vegetables, and um, fruit, which you learn as a grade schooler are good for you. Um, I noticed that the anxiety went away. The sleeplessness went away. Everything started to balance out. You were giving yourself good fuel. Exactly. So um, I was feeling good all over. Well, as I started... Now, you can drink some alcohol on the program. And for people who, again, are normal drinkers... That would be okay. I knew my limitations. Letting me have some wine, that would just be that would just be stupid. Like, why would anybody just drink some wine? You know. So I opted not to drink at all while I was on the program. So I get off the program. How long were you on the program? It was forty-five days. So I um, started to reintroduce alcohol into my system, and as as is per normal, I drank like a normal person for a period of time. How would you define drink like a normal person for a period of time? I would get buzzed, and that would be my limitation. Okay. But it would be daily, so I guess that's not technically... What's your definition of a buzz? Um, that's, where that, that's where you're in that happy place, you know, where you know, life is good and you love everybody. But you just... You're feeling no pain, like you're kind of happy and not, no anxi- absence of anxiety? Yes, exactly. And then um, I would... Uh, but again, still not like a normal person because I would do it every day. Um, but I wouldn't get to the blackout, pass out phase is what I'm trying to say. Okay, so during the 904 diet program, you, are you saying you were, you'd follow the program, you were not drinking for, for the amount of days you mentioned earlier was 45, 45. 45 days. And then you started to reintroduce alcohol for the buzz. Right. And then eventually what it leads to is more than the buzz. And then eventually what happens is then... Uh, there is a uh, there is a, a spiral a reason for a spiral that can be a breakup a tragic event like a death a just something that something that that causes so much anxiety that that only alcohol to blackout to pass out will take care of that as a coping mechanism to deal with stress let's drink more alcohol exactly so um, so I got back to that place, and then everything else started to happen again. The anxiety started to happen again, the uh, sleeplessness. And so I made the connection of, oh, maybe it's not what I was eating. Maybe alcohol is a bigger factor in all things that are negative in my world. Okay, now knowing what I know as the psychology godfather, you know, um, that, would, that period of sobriety and, and AA talk would be called a dry drunk. Are you familiar with that term? I am familiar with that term. And for those of you who are not familiar with the term, um, that is when you don't really have the intentions of not quitting forever. You're just um, giving yourself a break, I guess you would call it. Tell, tell me the, the doctorate terms, if you will. Well, I'm not a psychopharmacologist, but I, I mean, my understanding of it is that you were you're abstaining from the habit of the, you know, the alcohol, of the consumption of alcohol, but your mindset and your, your um, personality and the deviant part of the self that craves the alcohol has not been dealt with. So you're kind of ta- putting it on the table, but you still have some of the personality defects and some of the demons that are, are still there, and you're not really addressing them. That's, that's kind of my understanding of it. Yes, that it, that would definitely be true. In fact, I had a friend who said said to me at one point, you know, you have got to figure out what is the underlying reason of why you're doing what you do. Which is 
a big challenge sometimes. I was wondering, looking at your book also, um, I don't know if people were able to ask you questions on this gizmo here or not, but uh, if they are, fine. Uh, being in the media and being the phonologist and being um, in the spotlight, did that you know, have an influence or impact on the, the origins or the, the, the cravings for drinking to kind of be on and be entertaining and be charismatic or that sort of thing? Did that, you think, play a factor in your alcoholism? In, in deal, I do, but in I follow the question, yeah. Um, but I think in dealing with the underlying issues, um, I would say my biggest reason for drinking would lie somewhere in the ego part of it. Um, the ego, yeah, definitely wanting to be liked. Always wanting to be liked, always wanting to be, you know, the life of the party. The approval, the social approval? Yes, definitely. Definitely the social approval. Okay, so uh, using alcohol as a anti-anxiety medicine so that you're not anxious around people and then they'll like you better? Or no? Correct me then. Yeah, no, definitely not. I, I, don't, I don't have issues with walking into a room and, you know, gauging the room and trying to be the chameleon that, um, that that room... So no social anxiety issues? No, not at all. Not at all. But, um, yeah. Can you elaborate on the part where you said for people to like you more if you're comfortable? Well, I would say that, that now in sobriety, I'm okay with people not liking me. Does that make sense? It does, well, actually, to me, it does. It does to me. Yeah, because okay. I don't think everybody is going to like everyone. And they... That's part of being a human being. You say that logically, though. But, I mean, for somebody who's sick, they don't... Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, they don't understand that. They don't think that way. Mm-mm, no. It, that's, that's irrational, actually. Well, yes. And, and so I guess, the, I guess the, the street phrase, the word on the street phrase would be being needy. I was super needy in, in, um, in my addiction. And now I'm just like, oh, okay, I don't fit into your world. No worries. Moving along. I'm okay with people not not liking me or... Uh, not approving of you? Yeah, not approving of me. Yeah. Well, I, I approve of you. Does that well, make you feel better? It does. Since we're the only people in the room, I have the entire room. You know, it's interesting. Is that you're also... It sounds like you, you are comfortable in front of the camera. It's your kind of, you refer to that as your, your, your happy place. It is, is it still your happy place? Oh, absolutely. Yes, I love it. Uh, um, I was just kind of looking through some of my notes here. And you're referring to, for those of you who are listening oh. to the podcast, you're referring to the book. I see you looking through the notes of the book. So it look, I, I recall, I'm trying to, uh, there was a period, and this may be recent, where there was a failed relationship and things got really destructive for you. And, and yeah. without getting into lots of detail, it, okay, you want to talk a little bit about that or are you comfortable? Yeah, I would love to. Um, I would love to only because he's given me permission to. So I was in a relationship for two and a half years um, with my boyfriend, Rababa. We call him Rababa because his name is spelled (laughs) R-O-B-B. Rababa? Yeah. What's up, Rababa? (laughs) So, and he was phenomenal. We had two strikes against us. One of them was um, our age difference. He's 18 years younger than me. Um, So that was always kind of in the back of my head. Um, and the second one was uh, we are geographically undesirable in our relationship. He lives in Nashville. 
So, um, but we had an amazing relationship. Um, he's a musician, and uh, that is one of the things that I am super envious of is the ability to play music. So, um, and he was amazingly talented and had a studio in his house. And, and so it was just, it was a two and a half year, uh, of that 90 day romance stage because we would take turns going back and forth and we called it, uh, the best of both worlds tour. Because we would go camping up in Tennessee and then we would come here. Yeah. And and the nightlife in Nashville is unbelievable. Amazing. Yeah. Um, just talent after talent after talent, street after street. And then he would come here and we would um, hang out at the beach and, you know, kind of uh, he would jump into my world, which was, you know, a party every weekend night because of, you know, my connections and everything. So we just we had a really great relationship. But um, but what was really sad about it was I would I would cross that line like constantly cross that line from I am a happy drunk to saying just like negative things that I couldn't remember the next day more than once I woke up and he was on the couch and I'm like why are you on the couch and he would have to fill in the blanks for things that I had said to him and he was such he still is he's not dead he is such a nice kind-hearted giving person and there were times when I treated him like crap. And that is one of the things that I just absolutely regret. And I'm so grateful that he is still a dear friend of mine. Um, still a, you know, we still say I love you to each other. I've gone up, he, he saved me from Hurricane Irma, told me, demanded I get on a plane and come stay with him during Hurricane Irma. Um, and while I was in treatment, I had the um, financial means to fly up there for a weekend and sit down with him and look him in the eye and genuinely apologize for um, how I had treated him because he didn't deserve that. Would you have no memory of those episodes? So you said you'd wake up and you had been ugly the night before kind of thing? or No memory. No memory at all? Nope. Now, in retrospect, is it just all the alcohol that you drank the, at that night that kind of changed your personality, you think? or Oh, absolutely. That's not my personality. I, my, my entire mission in life is to raise people up. You know, I'm the one who walks into the room, and if I feel that you're insecure at all in the room, I will find a genuine way to compliment you to raise your... Uh, your ego to you know help you that's that's who I am internally not a person who takes the especially the person that now don't get me wrong I'll call you out if you're wrong or inappropriate but but not to say and do the things that I did to him that's just not who I am so um that was just heartbreaking to me I had to beg him to stay in that relationship over and over again. You also spoke about, if you're comfortable, I guess when you were a teenager, some other relationships that you had that involved alcohol um, and um, you drank beer and uh, revolving a breakup. Do you want to talk about that? Oh, sure. Yeah, you're referring to the one where I took a fistful of aspirin, I'm guessing. Called 911. Yeah, so uh, I was... I was not I wasn't even in a relationship with this guy. I he pursued me until I had sex with him is what happened. And then once I did, he didn't want to like be with me at all anymore. 
And um, so I went home and took a fistful of aspirin and then called 911. Um, My parents were sleeping. I mean, this is how ridiculous this was. It's so ridiculous talking, you know, when you talk, when you say things out loud of things that you did, it's just like, what? You can barely believe it yourself. Yeah. So I called 911. My parents wake up to the ambulance at the door. My mom has no clue what's going on. Um, The ambulance comes, takes me to the hospital, puts that goo down into my stomach so that I vomit everything up. And, And in my teenage angst mind, I'm thinking, oh, he's going to feel sorry for me and come back to me. I mean, this is the ridiculousness that that was my brain, even at that early of an age. I was a teenager when that happened. Wow. Yeah. Wow. 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 <laughs> Interesting story. And, and um, you know, you're not the only one that's done things like that, by the way. Teenagers go through breakups and do things like that. Um, so going further through the book, it it looks like you went through kind of a rationalization phase where you'd kind of rationalize your drinking. You talk about, you know, do you eat to get full? Do you, um, you know, what's the purpose for the Super Bowl? Everybody's hung over the next day. And, and do you want to talk a little bit about your kind of alcoholic rationalisms? Sure. So there is a, um, and most people are familiar with it. It's like a survey you take that kind of gauges if you're an alcoholic or not. And some of the questions I felt were just silly. Um, some of them that you mentioned, like, have you ever missed work because of alcohol? Well, of course, that's why the Super Bowl, the Monday after the Super Bowl is the most missed day at work. Everybody does that, right? So there were questions that um, I just thought didn't really gauge if you're an alcoholic or not. And um, But then I started check checkmarking more and more of the questions, and that kind of was like, hmm, does a normal person check mark these questions? Probably not. But then there were enough redeeming qualities of the survey, like, have you ever gotten a DUI? No, I have not. So I'm okay, right? That I would try to rationalize um, how bad my drinking was. Well, the whole reason why I'd never gotten a DUI is because God invented Uber. I mean, let's be honest. That's why I'd never gotten a DUI. Not because I wasn't to the stage of what should have been a DUI. So Uber can be an enabler for alcoholics, perhaps. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and other drug problems, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, Shame Uber's- on you, Uber. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I drive for Uber now. Oh, you do? Yeah, I got laid off from my job. And I, t- I, I said to my sister, I said, what am I going to do? What am I going to do for money now? And my sister, who was the one who ended up saving me, said, well, you could drive for Uber now. <laughs> no, that, it's interesting. As I, I treated a guy that is a, a, an Uber driver, and he told me, this fits with our conversation, that around 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning, I can't recall the time, at Jack's Beach, he'd go to the bars, and he said, as soon as the bars closed, the people would come out in droves, all need an Uber, and he that's just what he would do is pick up all the drunks and take them home. And they, they'd fall over the hood of his car, they'd, you know, and he, he, he went on and on. But that was his, his bed and brother, butter was picking up people who were drunk. Yeah, it's absolutely yeah. true. Now, are you putting yourself in that situation? Am I putting myself in? And as an Uber driver, are you on the other side of the, of the, of the driver's seat, so to speak? Yeah, it, it's interesting conversations. <laughs> Interesting conversation. That's a lot different now. Yeah, I should do Facebook Lives on that. That would be yeah. huge um, hits. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
uh, fast forwarding a little bit, <clears throat> excuse me, with your book, there's um, a real painful part where you talk about um, your father and getting a phone call from your, your mother about your father. And do you want to comment a little bit, maybe share a little bit about that and your sister? Or is that something you're comfortable talking about? Yep. Um, so March 11th, let me back up a little bit so I can fill in the story. So my dad was never um, the person who uh, called ever. Not even on Christmas or birthdays would we even talk to my dad. My mom would call and wish a happy birthday, Merry Christmas from, uh, from both of them. Uh, the only time I spoke to my dad was those awkward conversations on his birthday and Father's Day. And, um, and then if I had a question, because my dad was amazing at fixing anything. Uh, and with the invention of smartphones, I could send him a photo. So um, those were the only times I had conversations with my dad. And that's not to say that we didn't, you know, genuinely love each other. We did. We just loved each other in kind of this awkward silence. And so uh, my dad went um, into the hospital right before my siblings and I were supposed to go home to visit. We didn't know if he would make it through, and he did, and he really rallied. I mean, he, he, was, he was awesome the entire trip home. Um, and then about two weeks after the trip, he called, and he told me uh, a couple of things um, that he was proud of me, which was very unusual. And then uh, he talked to me about my drinking. And so I knew, like, when my dad made a phone call to talk about it that that kind of stuck in the back of my head like maybe I have reached my limitations. What time frame was this? This was uh, in February. February. So um, the phone call came on March the 1st and um, he ended it by saying I love you and my dad never said I love you. He begrudgingly said I love you too. You know you'd say I love you dad and he'd say I love you too. Um, But uh, he said I love you. So that kind of really stuck in my head. Ten days later, um, it is the Gate River Run, March 11th, and uh, I woke up that morning, um, still buzzed from the night before. I had the alarm set because it was my tradition to have people over uh, for mimosas to start the day. We would watch the Gate River Run go off on television, and then we would drive down to, with a rider, illegally with a rider, um, meaning, you know, open container of alcohol. That's what a rider is? A rider is when you put uh, alcohol into a... Um, oh, a roadie. A roadie, yeah. I called it a rider, but yes, a roadie. So we take a roadie and go down to the foot of the Hart Bridge, and we would cheer people on, and then we'd go back to my house and um, continue to drink, and I would make, um, make breakfast for everybody. Well, that particular morning, I had opened up a bottle of champagne waiting for everyone, and um, one by one, people started dropping out. And so dropping out, they, they weren't coming over. They had made other plans. Okay. So, uh, when the last person texted and said they weren't going to make it, I thought, ah, what's the point? So I opened up the vodka and I did several shots of vodka, um, to get buzzed. This is in the morning. Mm-hmm. This is probably about nine o'clock in the morning. And, um, which wasn't unusual for me on a Saturday morning. And I would, uh, I just, I went back to bed and I fell asleep. Well, in the interim, um, my father passed away. And on that on that day. That morning. That mo- the Gate River Run. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. my phone is blowing up. I don't even hear it because I'm passed out. Um, at one point, I hear it when my sister calls, and I and I 
you know, in a drunken stupor look at it, I see my sister's calling, but I mean, my sister and I talked frequently anyway, so I thought I'll call her later. And I hung up. And, um, so the second time my sister called, I answered and she said, uh, are you okay? And I said, I don't know, like, um, what do you mean? Am I okay? And she said, well, dad died. Now, the first time she called, you said you hung up? Is that what you said? I I let it go to voicemail. Oh, okay. Yeah. And uh, so i that's how I found out my dad died. So you had vodka and then got the one call you ignored, another call that you answered from your sister telling you that your dad had passed away? Yes. And my mom had called several times in between that I didn't even realize. Um, And so once I got, I don't think I, I don't, you know, I spent the day crying and drinking and calling and having conversations with people I don't even remember. Um, and then when I got sober, I looked back on that moment, and that's when I write, write about it in the book, you know, that, oh, my gosh, my, my poor mom. I mean, she was all alone, you know, and I'm visualizing, you know, what happened and how scared she must have been, and she can't even get a hold of me. She can't even reach me on the phone. And I am actually her only blood relative. My brother and sister are her children, you know, in in her heart, but they are her children by marriage. I, you know, it's been her and I my whole life, and um, here she was all by herself, and she couldn't even get a hold of me. I mean, how awful. Does does she live in Montana? At their, their, uh, they were semi-retired, so she, at the time, was in Phoenix. Um, they were getting ready to pack up to go back to Montana for the summer, but at the time, she was in Phoenix. So your sister tells you that your father passed away, and um, did you talk to your mom after that? Or uh, obviously, it dawned on you, the, you know, the the brevity and the reality of something so horrible while you've been drinking. I, mean, I can't imagine what that felt like. When did you finally talk to your mom about it? Well, I spoke to my mom. Um, I tried calling her right after my sister called, and I couldn't get a hold of her. So I tried calling my dad's phone number, couldn't get a hold of her. And then she called me back uh, briefly after that, and or shortly after that, and uh, spoke to her for the first time then. So... Amazingly painful. I can't imagine that was was that March. The river runs usually in March. March eleventh. Yeah. So not that long ago. So after that point, did you, I imagine you did you fly home to uh, Arizona for to see, visit with your mom and your sister and your family? Well, it was a memorial service. It wasn't a funeral, so it was scheduled for April the first. So I spent the next. 26 days spiraling. I don't remember most of those days. And I did go to work many of those days. and um, But I just don't remember that. Spiraling with just grief and depression and, and, and drinking too? or, did, oh, or yeah. Yeah, tons of, tons of alcohol. Um, couldn't wait to get off work to um, immediately, you know... I wasn't even concerned about... In a spiral, I wasn't even concerned about the happy place. I was just concerned about getting past that so getting through the day yeah getting through the day involved nothing more that's probably why I don't remember most of the day is it involved nothing more than being in my own head as far as you know how many more minutes until I can drink again and would you do that alone a lot of the time oh yeah 
just at home after work drinking just oh. just like on the couch or something drinking yes yes on the couch computer in front of me um tv on yeah doing nothing but drinking eating and surfing the web okay and then you go and for the memorial service and you have a conversation with your sister about about this and you talk about that also um in your book and is that when you kind of made the decision to to get a handle on the alcoholism that's actually when i made a decision that it had to um end period so uh, because leading up to this i thought i had a handle on it i would do like 30 day purges you know that made me think that i had a handle on it or 30 day Sobriety. sobriety yeah that i I thought I had a handle on it. Um, but getting to Phoenix, my mom said to me, um, you can't drink while you're here. I'm having a hard enough time dealing with your dad's death. I can't deal with your drinking. And up to that point, I didn't realize how much it it bothered her that I drank when I would come home. You know, I just thought, oh, I'm on vacation. Mm-hmm. No big deal. Um, but I... Uh, made it a point to quit the Monday before I flew out, which uh, was on a Wednesday. I went through severe, severe detox. I was so, so sick. I was so sick when I got on that plane. And um, my sister and I both got home late. My mom was asleep. And we were sitting on the couch, and I thought, well, I'm going to come clean with her. So I started telling her the real truth. I I got really, really real with her. I told her, I told her a lot of the really raw stuff that I write about in the book. Um, and she just sat there quietly listening to me, um, which is typical of her. I mean, that's kind of her personality. She's a quieter person. And, um, and she doesn't have a lot of facial expression. Um, so that wasn't abnormal. But I couldn't figure out. I could see, I could sense something was going on in her head. Um, but I wasn't quite sure, like, if she was going to... Um, be the older sister and, you know, scold me. I wasn't quite sure how this was all going to unfold. But when she, uh, when I got done talking, her eyes welled up and she said, in one year and seven weeks, I lost my son and I lost my father. And if I lose you too, I will not survive because right now I am barely hanging on. And I knew that was true. Her son had died a year before our dad died. And she, uh, you know, just as you can imagine, a parent losing a child. And he wasn't a child. He was in his 20s, but it'll always be her child. Um, it was so hard on her. And, um, and so there was something in that sentence that just shook me awake. And all of a sudden, my alcoholism was no longer just about me. It was about saving her so now i i live to save her is that your sobriety date is that the day you started when she when you had that conversation with her that was two days later march 27th was my sobriety date the monday before okay and in your book you talk about i guess over the over the years before this tragedy happened um you know your friends and would encourage you to get help or go to inpatient detox type of treatment and and you would kind of refuse that. Um, looking back now, um, any thoughts to people out there who may be in that 
position themselves is to encourage them to get help. Yes. So my biggest um, fears were shame. Number one, um, were it You're doing an amazing job of facing that right now. I mean, okay. amazing. Yeah. No. Once. Once I. Yeah. Once I made the decision. That that's a that's a devil thing. We're very embarrassed to share things like yeah. that. I, I mean, I I really take my hat off to you for that. That's you know, Thank you. putting yourself out there like that. That's a that's a devil thing. That's the devil telling you that you should be ashamed. Absolutely, you should not be ashamed. It's a disease. Are people ashamed that they have breast cancer? Are people ashamed that they have prostate cancer? Are people ashamed that um, they have? You, you know, I could make diabetes. a diabetes. Yes, yeah. absolutely not. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. So why should you be ashamed that you have a disease of alcoholism? And, you know, I think the, I think it falls in line with a food addiction. And I'll tell you why I think food addiction and alcohol addiction are both considered, the stigma is that they are shameful diseases. It's because you have to have food to survive. So why can't you control your food intake? And alcohol is a very socially acceptable, when used in a proper text, a very sociable um, way of lifestyle. So you're ashamed because you can't control it. Screw that. Screw that. You should absolutely not be ashamed that your body works different. These are things I learned in treatment. My body works different with alcohol than other people's bodies work with alcohol. Your brain lights up in a different way than than a non-alcoholic brain. Exactly. There's nothing to be ashamed about that. I think people, you know, make the mistake of shaming or whatever the word is because it's something they can't physically see. You know, um, and if you can't see it, then they believe, oh, there's something you can do to change it. And you can't see alcoholism. It's It's invisible. It sure is, especially when you're doing it behind closed doors. And that was, you know, that was my one job. My one, my mom, when she read the book, um, when she read the chapter book, that's all she's read so far. I remember she said, um, how did I not, I just, I don't know how I didn't see this. And I said, mom, you cannot blame yourself. My one job was to hide this from everybody. That was my one job. My one job now is to stay sober every day. That is my one job. And you're now promoting sobriety, so you're going in reverse, which is, you know, awesome. Yes, absolutely. You're turning it on its head. Right, because I think that there are people who are going to see this um, who are thinking in the back of their mind, I'm talking specifically to people I relate to, like professional women. Um, In the back of their mind, the idea of the alcoholic is somebody who ranges from that homeless guy under the bridge to typically a man who is you know has the red nose from the years of drinking who always has the cocktail in his hand um but that's con- still considered socially acceptable um they think that that is that is y- y- the extent of it um so what they're doing behind closed doors, nobody else is going to relate to. There's nobody that's going to be able to relate to my situation because that's how I felt. Well, that those faces of alcoholism are not accurate. This is the face of alcoholism. That's the face of alcoholism. So it's okay. It's okay to ask for help. Do you think the companies that make alcoholic products would agree with that statement? In terms of... To- of you being the face... Of alcoholism? 
No. No, because they want to make money, don't they? <laughs> That's right. I am the face. Uh, I'd like to think I am the face of, you know, let's have a good time. I'm like, the, right. I'm like Pitbull's girl. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. So I wanted to kind of shift gears a little bit and ask you some, some questions that might be kind of tough and challenging and um, about treatment and without getting into some of the specifics about, I mean, it's called, you know, AA because it's anonymous, so I'm not real familiar with um, what you're allowed to talk about and what you're not allowed to talk about, that sort of thing. I do know that there are the 12 steps and that you need to have a sponsor. And I, I guess my question for you, if you're comfortable answering that, is do you have a sponsor? Are you following that type of a protocol? Or are you in a different type of recovery program? Or do you feel like talking about that, your treatment part? Okay, so... I thank you for asking that question because I'll tell you. I'll tell you the um, okay. So there's several um, programs post uh, intensive outpatient treatment or in inpatient treatment. Um, I am not allowed to talk about them um, because they are anonymous. Okay. Um, so that would be going against the traditions. Uh, so I am not allowed to talk about them. Um, I do, however, always let people know that I can talk about it in private. Okay. Okay. So people can reach out to me and talk to me about my post um, treatment plan, um, as well as I, I I have educated myself on other programs too outside of what I chose to do. Um, so I can speak about those. So if anybody wants to reach out to me, they can reach me at the Crushed Velvet Project at gmail dot com. Okay, good. I gladly speak to people in private about that. But yes, thank you for bringing that up because um, there are people who kind of look at me like, I can't believe you're out there. I thought you're not supposed to talk about it. Well, I, of course, I, anybody can share their own story. You're talking about yourself, not, yourself. Not, the, yes. not the treatment program. Exactly. And I do, um, with the blessing of Dr. Jackson, I do talk about my own experience at the Greenfield Center. Um, but past that, I only talk about in private. So are you, do you currently, and you don't have to get into specifics again, but so you're currently involved in some sort of a treatment, uh, like a regular basis now? Yes. You are? It would be foolish to think that I have this thing covered. Right. So it's something that you continue to, you stay on top of uh, and you just keep going with it, right? For the rest of my life. It's like, again, back to diabetic. A diabetic doesn't, you know, stop using sugar or take insulin for a period of time and then live their life. Yeah. Yes, exactly. I'll never be cured. I, the only cure for me is to, um, is to never drink again. I can never drink again. Do you think looking back now, you know, your dad said that he loved you and that he, he, draw, he was calling, you know, like almost like he knew something was going to happen or do you want to talk about that a little bit or? Yeah, well, I definitely know that my dad knew because he shared with us, um, in passing, it wasn't like a deep conversation or anything, but in passing, he would say, I'm pretty sure this is my last year. He, t- he told us that. And again, not in like this, this we, kids, we need to have a talk kind of thing. It was just one of those passing comments um, that he said that you just kind of, you know, go, okay, you know, and, and move on to, you know, what's good on television tonight. Um, but yeah, I think he definitely knew. Um, and I think that he stepped outside of his comfort zone um, to to save my life. Period. So, with that said, and with us meeting together today, which is you know wonderful for you to share your story with everyone, I you know I, I admire that. Um, 
what are your future plans for this prod, the velvet crushed, uh, behind, the, pro- the crushed velvet project? Yes. That's the that right, hopefully, yeah. Um, are you traveling around? Are you, you know, uh, doing events? Are you giving other speeches? Can you tell us about that? Or? Yes. So I'm in the beginning spe- or in the beginning stages of it. So what I am doing with the Crushed Velvet Project is um, it is right now at, in the lawyer's hands to become a non non for profit, um, which will include. Um, I, I will be writing the book, so the dollars uh, generated from the book sales will be uh, regenerated into the project for the second step, which will be providing free speaking engagements to anyone and everyone who asks, no matter where it is in the country. So it will provide funds to do that. Um, and then in addition to that, what, I, what I'd like to do, and this is in the future, um, but I'm still, I've still got my eye on the ball um, and am working towards it, is I want to be able to provide funds for that gap. So um, for me personally, going to treatment was free. Um, I didn't even have a copay to go to treatment. Uh, so, um, so that was great for me. Um, then there's the indigents who can go to treatment for free um, on the government's time. But then there's people who, you know, fall in the gap. I don't have, I don't have children, so I don't have that, that weight on my shoulder financially. Um, you know, there are people who they have, they're barely making their ends meet, and they're, they don't have the finances to go to a treatment facility. So I want to provide scholarships eventually for people to get help. And um, so that's really, that's really the down the road future of where okay. I see this. My, my, I am on fire right now. My mission right now is to take away the shame, take away the stigma, and then eventually provide the means to, to help people um, go to treatment. Well, that, that's, you know, uh, I, again, I admire you and I thank you for being here. I'm not sure if this, with this Facebook thing, do they ask us questions or do you, how does that I work? I to wait till the end. Okay, unless you have other, area, other topics you want to discuss. Those are most of the questions that I have. Okay. Um, uh, so, I don't know how many followers you have on there now. Well, it's been a variety. So we oh. have six that are actively watching right now. Anybody who missed any part of this can go back. And they can watch it later. They can watch it later. Um, they can fast forward through um, things that they want to to okay. hear about in the uh, in the conversation. And so, if you guys have any questions, go ahead and type them right now. And this is your Facebook page. So, is is your Facebook? Tracy okay. Collins? Yes, is that- Tracy Collins. It can also be found under Tracy.com, um, T-R-A-C-Y-D-O-T-C-O-M. Love you guys, too. Uh, see, they're giving us... Is that, what are those? Yeah, so thumbs there's up? thumbs up, smiley faces, uh, angry. Why, why are you angry? Somebody Come on, man. What's up? We're doing a good... <laughs> doing a free community service here. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so- oh, thumbs up. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Love, love. Okay, so um, I also have the Crush Velvet Project page, and the Crush Velvet Project page posts anything that has to do with the stumbling into sobriety um, okay. interviews. So this one will go on that page as well. So if you're not interested in following me as a as a person, um, and you're just interested in this topic, you can go to the Crushed Velvet Project Facebook page, and ne- only things about sobriety will be listed in there. Um, so for those of you who are not familiar with, with George Joseph, you have podcasts. I am your seventh and your whole idea is uh, positive psychology. Is that? Well, yeah, that? I'm, I have a you know background of about 20 years as a therapist and I've been recently very interested in the field of positive psychology, which is where we study what makes people happy versus the traditional model of 
what's when you go to the doctor or the psychologist or the therapist, what's wrong with me? Well, what about what's right with you? And so it's it's a new area of psychology that I've been very interested in that looks at uh, making your life more positive and what matching your internal qualities with what will really make you happy. And like, for example, what you're doing is very positive and you're following your bliss, you're following your calling and you're having a happier life now, it sounds like. Oh yes, much so. And um, that's, that's one of the, the, myths that I want to bust is that, you know, life was going to be boring without alcohol. That was a fear of mine. I mean, has it been, is it, yeah. Are you a clown too? Do you have a, like a red nose? I do actually. Do you really? Well, yeah, because I worked for the Times Union when the circus came to town and they sent us these fun bags with uh, the hat, the the red noses and the, and the wigs. So I own it all. You know, I, uh, over the years go to a lot of conferences for continuing education for, for psychology there's a type of therapy that's called laughter therapy where people dress up as a clown and you're supposed to laugh and it makes you feel better. Did you know that? Well, okay. I completely can relate to that. So dressing up as a clown is not really that fun for me, but isn't it the same psychology when it comes to like Halloween, dressing up as somebody you're not, or like running in a breast cancer awareness race. I always wear a tutu, a fun tutu and do something crazy with my hair. It's the same psychology, right? Yeah, that's why I, I can completely agree with that. Yeah. yeah. That should be a whole nother podcast. We need to It should. It should. Um, well, I'm trying to think of here wrapping up. I know in the book you get just more nitty-gritty details, and we'll save those for a later time or for people that read the book. Um, any other thoughts or questions or anything you want to mention before we wrap up today, Tracy? No, I just want to. I want to cross promote and make sure that everybody knows to go to your webpage, which is josephcare.net, and check out some of your other podcasts. I was able to do it, and I really, really enjoyed. Well, it. thank so, you. Yeah, thank so you. definitely check those out. And um, if you have any questions, post uh, signing off on Facebook Live. Be sure to shoot me out a uh, uh, a Facebook message, or if uh, if you want to. Send me an email at the crushed velvet project at gmail.com. Do that, and we'll get your questions answered. And other than that, all right, man. All right, Tracy. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. We'll see you later. All right. Thanks again, Tracy, for coming out to the Psychology Godfather Studios. Everybody, be sure to check out her Facebook website, tracy.com. And that's a wrap for episode seven. I'm the Psychology Godfather. And we'll see you next time.